Greetings, and welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this episode of the Net Positive features a conversation with my friend Alan Hershkowitz. Alan is an environmental scientist. He worked for the Natural Resources Defense Council for 28 years. He formed the Green Sports Alliance. He has been considered by some to be the most consequential environmentalist in the history of North American sports. Just delighted to have Alan on the show. Hey, Alan. Brother Ted, man. Hey, we connect. Bingo. <laughs> hey, so good to see you. You look good, man. Uh, nothing. Yeah, life is good. You do too. You look the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, boy, boy, oh boy, what a freaking world we're dealing with, right? Yeah, no kidding. You think that the pandemic was bad enough? Now we've got a war going on. You know, uh, it was boy, crazy. You know, I, you know, I'm whipsawed between the work being exhilarating that I'm involved with, but the implementation of it being so complicated, mm. and you know, progress is so hard. Um, I'm not going to name names, but. <laughs> you know what you'll know what I'm talking about, but you know, at one particular venue, I'm working on 17 energy efficiency initiatives. Okay, that's you know based off of an Excel spreadsheet. You know, and collectively they'll add up to a few million dollars. Um, states got some programs to help subsidize it, and um, it'll probably reduce the greenhouse gases by about two percent. Um, you know, yeah, I don't hard, think hard it, earned percentages, right? What's that hard earned percentage points? Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. and, and that particular project, actually, we started talking about over two years ago, those projects, yeah. you know, and, um, so, you know, you hear people talk about net zero or carbon neutral. I've never let anybody use those terms. Cause I don't, you know, I tell them they're aspirational, you know, you know, we aspire to carbon neutral, we aspire to net zero, but, you know, to say we're doing a net zero venue or a net zero event. No, 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 no. You know, that's, you know, same thing with the word sustainability. Oh, we're doing sustainable this or sustainable that. I always ask you put the word more in front of the word sustainable and also, which, you know, there's 17, you know, there's 17 of these sustainable development goals. Like number one is no poverty. Number two, no, no hunger. Number three, good health. Number 13, climate action. What are you talking about? You know, so, um, you know, we're very blessed and privileged to be able to do this work. Um, there's nothing more meaningful than trying to alleviate human suffering. And, you know, fundamentally, that's what we're trying to do. Um, so there's the exhilaration part, like, wow, thank God I'm in the room. Thank God I'm, you know, able to do this. Um, at the same time, you know, climate and plastics and biodiversities, you know, it, it has imposed a new management obligation, a new 21st century management obligation. It, it, you know, it used to be just the right thing to do. And now it's a corporate management obligation. Investors are, you know, paying attention to it. Uh, regulators are paying attention to it. The media, um, fans, audiences. But organizations are still not, you know, structured internally to integrate this work into their agenda. And um, so, you know, as I mentioned to my therapist this morning, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm getting whipsawed between, I love the exhilaration of being part of this work, but, you know, I said, I feel such despair. He said, well, no, you feel rage. You feel rage. I said, well, I don't really, I'm not an enraged person. He goes, no, you should feel rage because, you know, 
despair is something like, oh, there's no hope. But rage, at least you could, you know, it's an active thing that you could, you know, act on. It's kind of interesting. Uh, yeah. But uh, I, you know, I, I, you know, look, you know, you and I have been talking about like helping the world for 40 freaking years. And, um, you know, it's not our fault that things are worse than they are, but, you know, we're, you know, it, there was a point where, you know, when you and I first met, you know, I really thought that, you know, we could resolve this issue. You know, that's how I was approaching it. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, we just need, you know, do this, do this, do this, get rid of fossil fuels here, you know, switch to this smarter approach, switch to this more economical approach. It all makes sense. It's economically good. It's ecologically good. Let's resolve this issue. Well, you know, now, it, you know, I don't see it as resolvable issues. You know, I see it as issues that we have to keep on managing until the sun implodes, you know. And, um, you know, like with racism, you know, another unresolvable issue, at least we're making progress. You know, we're making progress. You know, Black Lives Matter. I mean, there's just a, a much greater awareness of structural racism and, you know, racial bias. And we're making progress. I think we're making progress. Of course, too slow. And it's just infuriating to, you know, to see remnants of racism. But, you know, we're making progress. Um, gender bias, you know, um, you know, another one of these unresolvable issues. But we're making progress. We're definitely making progress. Environmental issues, sustainability, you know, more. No, we're going, you know, much quicker in the wrong direction still. So, uh, you know, but having a brother like you and a few others, you know, I mean, you know, I, I really did start this work, you know, the thinking that I could help save the planet. And now I do it because I just need to save myself, you know, sanity, you know. You know, you sound uh, you, you're you're in the trenches, Alan. At this at this juncture in your life, and uh, and the, you know, those are hard earned battles that you're fighting. And and the implementation is a lot. It is. It's uh, it's where the rubber hits the road. It's uh, it's tough sledding, as I like to say. I've got a number of projects that are going really well, and some that are hitting all sorts of snags. And it's like, ah, you know. But uh, but I uh, I guess you just have to. Just take a step back and take a few deep breaths and and realize all that uh, all that we have accomplished and that we are accomplishing and there's an awful lot of good. The cup is certainly half full. Yeah, look, you know, I don't know about accomplishments, but I do know about effort. And um, you know, when I get before my maker, I don't think she's going to say, you know, I mean, this is in my, of course psychotic imagination. I don't think she's going to say, did you solve global warming? You know, did you solve speech? I think she's going to say, how did you spend your time? You know, what did you try to do? And, um, you know, in that I could answer because every minute of the day, you know, um, that I'm doing my work or thinking it's about how to help alleviate human suffering. And you know what I've adopted you know, I know you know this, you know, I, I've done work in Australia and, you know, for every meeting in Australia, there's an acknowledgement of the indigenous land on which that meeting, you know, is taking place. Yeah. And um, I did a lot of work for many, many years, more than a decade down in Appalachia. And I was doing, you know, deep, you know, forestry protection work and um, fighting mountaintop coal mining and fighting the paper industry. And, um, Early on in that work, I realized very quickly that it would be good to affiliate with uh, religious ministries. Um, so I actually hired Evangelical, who has a, uh, a degree in environmental science, believe it or not. And, and those meetings all began with a prayer. Um, and um, so what I have started to do, and I just had a big meeting yesterday with two global you know, very, very famous organizations, which I'm, you know, I'm, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get into details. But now what I do is I remind everybody that we've come together to try to alleviate human suffering. And that's what the meeting's about. And, um, and that's what you this conversation's about, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different, you know, some of it is really literally, 
like figure out, you know, how to, you know, put solar panels on a, on a very complicated structure that has, you know, very few resources and, you know, whatever. Um, and some of it is just basically trying to get people to understand what needs to be done. You know, there's so much to do, but fundamentally every meeting I go to now, I just try to acknowledge everyone for coming together, whether the meeting is successful, whether the partnership is successful, uh, whether the project succeeds that we are trying, we have gathered to see how we might be able to um, alleviate human suffering. Really interesting. Really interesting. Well, I want to, I want to talk to you about this motivation because I, as I was thinking, as I'm preparing to talk with you and I looked at your bio and I was sort of reminded, I was overwhelmed by all your accomplishments, Alan. Congratulations. I mean, it's just awesome. And one, I mean, this, this quote that the most consequential environmentalist in the history of North American sports. I mean, that's just a mind blower. That's just a, that's a great, that's a great thing that, that you have had that level of impact uh, in the, in the sports alliance. Yeah. Well, you know, um, so, you know, I love the Yijing, you know, um, what, you know, listeners might call the I Ching, but, you know, what we know is the Yijing, right? And um, what it reminds us is so much of life is a result of chance. You know, um, I remember when I was getting my PhD, I was doing it in New York City and I, you know, I jumped on the subway and I get into the subway car and just you know, I didn't, I didn't notice this person walking on the subway car or not, but a professor from the graduate school where I was attending walked into that subway car. Okay. This is 1978. And uh, he walks over to me, says, hi, you know, I'm, you know, Frank Macchiarola. I'm a you know professor at the grad school. I've seen you around. I said, oh yeah, I know Professor Macchiarola. I know who you are. And we start chatting this or that. And he says, you know, what are you doing this summer? And I said, well, you know, I think I'm going to, you know, probably work at my father's ice cream store. I think I'm going to go visit some friends in California. They're going to work at my father's ice cream store. And he said, well, you know, I have a, I have a little fellowship for research. You know, would you be interested in um, a research fellowship? And uh, I had never gotten paid to use my mind. I always had to use my body, you know, uh, whether it was selling ice cream or delivering groceries or driving a taxi. So here's an opportunity. What you get paid to use my, I said, wow. Yeah, I'd, sure. I'd love that. He goes, okay, great. Well, two things. First, the research program that he asked me to help deal with had to do with New York city's water supply. Uh, this was 1978. New York City had just come out of a fiscal crisis. So the Department of Environmental Conservation, you know, it had, uh, you know, funding problems and protecting the water supply was a challenge. So I was uh, and that introduced me to environmental work, um, which, you know, actually from that little fellowship, I reframed my Ph.D. dissertation to be oriented towards, um, you know, the interface between economics and ecology. And it was a total serendipitous thing. I had bumped into this guy, you know, on the subway. That's one outcome of that meeting. The second outcome of that serendipitous subway meeting was that when I walked into the research venue, you know, the offices where the research, you know, team, including myself, was to be seated, I met this woman who turned out to become my wife. Um, and, you know, and then we had three children together and we, you know, and we developed, you know, our family. And it was, it was literally because I walked into that subway car and he walked into that subway car. Um, and we just, you know, had a random conversation and, you know, talk about serendipity, right? What were, you, um, what were you thinking when you were a kid? Let's go back to like even before that you met your, your graduate program, but you grew up in, um, in Brooklyn, I think. 
Yeah. And you just said your dad had an ice cream store. What were you thinking you were going to do with your career at that point? Or Well, again, you know, my parents were refugees, um, you know, Holocaust survivors. Um, it was, you know, um, my parents are historically um, amazing people. Um, you know, my father having survived um, almost 19 months in Auschwitz, um, according to the archivist, I, re- I wrote a little book about this. Uh, he is the longest known survivor to have survived Auschwitz. The average life at Auschwitz, the longest was like six months. There were some people who would live nine months. My father lived for 19 months. And we discovered with the archivist, the reason was because, and he told, because he was able to find dog food that he could steal. So dog food, he had an outdoor work near where they kept the dogs and he would steal the dog food, help keep them alive. Um, and my mother also, and he had two children murdered and his wife was, her first wife were murdered. And my mother's daughter was murdered. And this was before she met my father and her husband was murdered. And she was in the Dacha concentration camp and part of the medical experiments there. So it was very sad. And um, I was always trying to, you know, heal them by, you know, making them happy, which was, of course, what I didn't realize was that just by being born, I was their healer. Uh, but as it concerned their emotional circumstance, there was nothing I could do to heal that. Um, so one of the things that I used to do was say, I want, my father was a butcher originally. He, you know, he, he owned a cattle farm in uh, uh, Poland on the German border. In, in, at the time, it was like a mercantile pre-capitalist economy. Um, and um, so when he came to the States in '48. And there's a long story of how he got here. He he owned a, he worked at a butcher shop. So I used to say I want to be a butcher like him. My mother, on the other hand, came from a very um, you know uh, intellectual family. Her my mother actually graduated the gymnasium, which was very. She was from Vilna, uh, from Lithuania, which at the time when she was born was still part of Poland. Um, and she, um, you know, her father was a lawyer. Her mother was an educator. She came from an educated family. So she was going, you're not going to be a butcher. You're going to be a doctor, you know. So, you know, I, I was sort of, you know, between those two worlds. Um, to the best of my knowledge, um, when I was in high school, I was very interested. I graduated class mathematician. I liked math. I, I thought I would be an architect. Um, and then, you know, when I went to college, um, I really fell in love with literature and, um, I thought maybe I would be a journalist, you know, maybe I'd be a writer of some kind. Um, and I, when I, I did a a term abroad in France, I was also sort of a minor in French. Um, and when I came back from university of Grenoble, I was like, okay, you know, what am I going to do with this? I thought I might be a translator, but, you know, I quickly learned that I could not compete with native French speaking people as a translator. But in the course of that work, I got in, um, I started to interact with people at the UN, United Nations, because I was in New York and, you know, the UN was literally like, you know, 10 blocks away from where I was, you know, living. And, um, and I started to, really get interested in international politics. Um, And I went to grad school with an idea of, you know, maybe doing, you know, working for the State Department, doing international political work. And what happened then, we had, you know, these what were then called energy crises, you know, um, that related to, you know, you know, uh, the Arab oil embargo is what, you know, Arab boycott, you know, and gas lines. So, I started to look at international oil companies and international energy, but to do a dissertation, you can't do a dissertation on, you know, international oil companies. You need to really, you know, you need to, you know, a PhD, you know, you need to know more about less than anybody else. You know, you really got to hone down and, you know, one thing led to another and I wound up doing my PhD dissertation on New York city's energy infrastructure. And I, um, back in 1980, 81, 82, I uh, wrote about the need to deregulate the utility market to allow for the integration of more efficient small-scale energy technologies like 
wind and cogen and you know and i felt that the regulatory system uh the regulators was captured the re state regulators were captured by the utilities and the utilities were remember perper public utility regulatory policies act was enacted in 1976 that was the the foundational um document that i built my dissertation around saying here's the objectives of the public utility regulatory policies act of 1976 it's designed to um promote the integration of small scale technologies and you know here's what's happening you know here's how the how the con edison you know and the local utilities are using regulators to prevent purpose from being implemented so i was actually arguing for market-based uh uh you know for deregulation i was using the language of you know you know of milton friedman free market language to promote ecological progress you know and um and so i did my phd on con edison and uh, on energy on new york city's energy system and energy technologies i studied a lot of it you know a lot of engineering a lot of energy uh, and that's when i met you um you know because you know, we met, you know, around the battles around nuclear and, um, and, you know, actually, yeah, it was, you know, nuclear and there was, you know, different, you know, of course, the Shoreham nuclear plant that was proposed for Long Island and others. And, um, and I was like, no, no, that's more of the same, you know, what we need. So um, as I was finishing my PhD, uh, I was teaching, then I started to teach at the city university and also at Hofstra University. And um, I was making about $12,000 a year. And, um, you know, my wife said, you know, you really need to get a, a real job. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, but, you know, we were living on Madison Avenue and 97th Street and paying $340 a month rent for a five room apartment around the corner from the Guggenheim, you know. So, you know, it was great, you know, and uh Plus, I was in the city university grad school, so tuition was one hundred and twenty-five dollars a term. It was a very affordable existence, you know. Um, and but I did think, all right, you know, um, I, you know, let me see what else is out there besides being. I thought maybe I'd be a professor, but I I bumped into a little research organization that studied technology maybe you from inform you remember inform. Inform. Well, I, I met you at an inform meeting in 1984 there you go joanna underwood was there i couldn't remember i couldn't believe i remembered her name this morning yeah, and yeah. that's where we met and you were basically focused on the accomplishing the, the construction of all the garbage burning plants and the incinerators in new york exactly exactly and you know and i i was not an opponent like the environment i was an analyst and i identified i you know i wrote the cover story for mit's magazine technology review garbage burning how it could work and the garbage burning industry hated me because the criteria i i, I had done research in japan on garbage burning i had done research in europe yeah. and um actually yeah i wrote a book called garbage management in japan right and um the way they did it there it was highly regulated with very trained operators, you know, with, you know, you know, very sophisticated continuous monitoring technologies, you know, really sophisticated air pollution control devices, none of which existed in the United States. So when I wrote how it could work, I was basically explaining why we should not be building these plants in the U.S. context until we had done a lot of um regulatory and you know and, and and worker training and whatnot so the industry hated me the environmental groups were like what do you you know they didn't like the title so they were like oh you're pro garbage burning and i'm saying well you know i don't think we should be burying btus in the landfills but i don't think we should be burning them in a way that you know volatilizes you know heavy metals or you know you know chlorinated organics that's so, that your i'm, I'm going to try to push the the, the conversation because yeah. we have so much you want to get to but but you went from focusing on, and I remember your very balanced approach. I remember you talking about plants and incineration plants in Europe that were really well managed. And you were not, you know, you were a balanced view. I was a strategic planner for the New York Power Authority at the time. And I was trying to take a balanced view of, of looking at all the resources that we could. But um, you shifted from that 
that um, that, that group inform to Natural Resource Defense Council, where you spent, I want to say, like 25 years of your career, right? Yeah, 28 years. Yeah, what happened is, um, so I became this, you know, and I wrote this book on garbage management, and then the the Congressional uh, Office of Technology Assessment, which no longer exists, the OTA, uh, hired me as the principal consultant to study garbage burning. And I led a congressional research toward Japan and Europe and and then I was asked to testify in front of a couple of House committees on my findings. And next to me at the testifying table was the senior attorney from NRDC uh, who ran New York City's urban program, who was fighting, you know, uh, Ed Koch's plan to build seven you know, high volume incinerators. And, um, you know, our his approach was, you know, more like from an environmental justice, you know, he, he, we had different approaches, but mine was, yes, it could work, but you have to do AV. So he liked my framing and we went for a walk after, and he said, you know, might you be interested in, you know, working with NRDC? Cause we could really use a solid waste. We don't have a, you know, a solid waste program and might you be willing to, you know, to, to, to work with us? And I said in a minute, you know, and um, at the time, I, you know, so they hired me at NRDC and I was the first person hired directly onto senior staff at NRDC. Um, and at the time, NRDC's budget was $7 million. Today, it's about $400 million. Um, there were about, I don't know, 40 or 45 people working at NRDC. Today, there's almost 500 people working at NRDC. So I got, you know, and I was hired by John Adams, you know, the founder, you know, I had to be interviewed by John. Um, and I developed this solid waste program. But as you develop solid waste, you know, when you talk about garbage, you got to look at what they're burning, paper, plastics, metals, glass. So I started to look at how to design for recycling, which made me study the paper industry, which made me study the plastics industry. I had to understand, you know, what happens when you burn plastics, what happens when you put metals in a combustor. So I started to, to really help create the field known as industrial ecology. You know, we went from, you know, design for recycling, but once we realized, well, if you design for recycling, you could actually screw up other things. So we changed the focus from design for recycling to product policy. We called it product policy. Um, And product policy then led us to I worked with the EPA. We created something called the life cycle assessment. Um, and I helped develop the technical framework for life cycle assessment, um, which to this day has become an extremely, you know, I mean, it's a fundamental, you know, analytical tool. Uh, and in fact, I remember, um, you know, going back now, you know, 1990 something, uh, one of my colleagues, Rob Watson in NRDC's energy program, he used to call me Hirsch, you know, he goes, Hirsch, um, we need a shortcut for life cycle assessments for buildings. Um, he goes, you know, we got to, you know, let building developers, you know, you know, understand life cycle assessment, but we can't have them do the whole life cycle assessment. We need a shortcut. And I said, Rob, there is no shortcut for life cycle assessment. There's only one way to do it. Right? He goes, no, 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 it's not going to work for buildings. I said, Rob, I can't help you. Well, guess what? Rob went and developed lead. <laughs> so in touch with Rob. I know this is great. This is a great story. And Rob is the godfather of lead. You know, and let's 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 fast forward. So let's leave the the the, the trash world uh, and all of its upstream and downstream uh, implications, and and get into the greening of sports, which you've really developed your your, your massive reputation. And it sounds like it was at an NRDC board meeting where Robert Redford said, "Hey, you guys." You got to get to the masses. You got to get to the public. You got to relate to the masses. And I suggest you do it by reaching out to sports heroes or, or something to that effect. I mean, you tell the story. How did that come about? Yeah, right. Well, so what happened is when I was working on garbage, I started to focus on paper. Um, you know, I, I started to realize, you know, the, the upstream forestry impacts. And um, what I discovered is that some of the most ecologically rare forests were being cut down to make toilet paper. So I started a campaign at NRDC and I brought in um, Greenpeace and Rainforest Action and Forest Ethics. And we started a global campaign on um, uh, toilet paper. 
get people to understand that they should use toilet paper made from recycled fibers, not primary fibers. And in 2004, I got a call from a representative of the owners of the Philadelphia Eagles football team. Jeffrey and Christina Lurie, you know, he had inherited a few billion bucks. He decides to buy a football team. He's a, you know, a cool, hip guy. Christina is a major environmentalist. They asked me to come down and they had just built Lincoln Financial Field. It was a brand new stadium. They wanted to know how to make their stadium an environmental model. And I said, well, you know, you actually should have brought me in before you designed the thing. Um, but now, you know, since you're already using, you know, the highest efficiency energy technologies, the latest state-of-the-art technology, let's take a look at what you're buying, your procurement. And I quickly discovered that they were buying their bathroom tissue, their toilet paper from a mill in Tennessee that was sourcing its fiber from Eagle Habitat. So Eagle Habitat was being wiped out to make the toilet paper that was being used at the Eagle Stadium. And I had done that research and I had, you know, conservation maps. I had done, you know, literally, you know, you know, weeks of work with the Conservation Biology Institute out of Oregon. And we studied, you know, you know, the flow of fiber from the forest to the toilet paper at the Eagle Stadium. And I said, you know, we sat down and I said, okay, what do we do? I said, look, you know, you're doing everything right on energy, this and that. I said, um, you know, let's look at your products. Do you know where your paper products are coming from? And they said, no, why, you know, I said, well, the paper industry is one of the biggest, you know, uh, contributors to global warming pollution. It's the largest consumer of fresh water, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they said, no, we haven't looked. I said, Have, do you know where your toilet paper is coming from? And they said, not toilet paper. Like, what kind of question is that? And I said, well, your toilet paper, and I showed them a map. I said, this mill, the Calhoun mill, this mill is um, where your toilet paper is being made. And then I showed them a biology conservation map with different species. And I said, look at the e your eagle habitat. You're wiping out eagle habitat to make toilet paper at that mill. People are wiping their ass at Eagle Stadium with eagle habitat. And let me tell you, if Greenpeace gets a hold of that, or Forest Ethics gets a hold of that, or Rainforest Action gets a hold of that, you, you're going to have an anti-branding campaign on your hands that you're not going to win. And they flipped out. And they literally, Christina took me into the front office, you know, and she said, who buys our toilet paper? You know, she yells and, you know, somebody, so we changed the toilet paper. And that was, I thought, a one-off. About a year later, I was at an NRDC board trustee meeting at Bob Redford's house. Robert Redford, the actor in Sundance, hosted, this was now 2000 and, uh, and early 2005, George Bush, the first, had just been, the second, had just been reelected. And um, so Redford, you know, so we had a little meeting about how do we communicate climate literacy? How do we communicate environmental literacy to the public? And it was Redford. And he said, you know, we got to connect with sports. He said, you know, and, you know, he says, people are not paying attention to science. Um, we got to connect with sports. And actually what he didn't know, which I then verified, was at the time he said that 13% of adult Americans said they follow science and 71% said they follow sports, right? So he was absolutely right. So at this little meeting, you know, I had lunch with Bob, with Redford, and um I said, hey, you know, Bob, I, I did this thing with the Eagles, you know, maybe we could start a sports project at NRDC. And he said, I'll help you anyway, you know, that sounds great. And at the table sitting next to Bob Redford was Bob Fisher. Bob Fisher's family founded The Gap. Bob is still the CEO of The Gap, or at least as time, you know, right now. And, um, and Bob Fisher says, you know, Alan, I'm an oak owner of the Oakland Athletics. Um, why don't you write a letter to the commissioner of baseball and I'll get it to him. So I wrote a letter to Commissioner Bud Selig at Major League Baseball, and I said, I, you know, I'd like to talk with you about building on the good environmental work baseball is doing. I had absolutely no idea what environmental work baseball was doing at all. Um, but I figured somebody, I didn't want to write a letter to the commissioner of baseball saying, I'd like to help you reduce your impacts. That would not be a, a polite way to introduce myself. I wanted to focus on the positives. I'd like to build on the good environmental work baseball is doing. Not even 10 days go by, and the senior vice president of Major League Baseball at the time, John McHale, I get a call from him, and he says, the commissioner received your letter. He, he'd like to take a meeting. That's what he said, take a meeting. It was the first time anybody used those words. He'd like to take a meeting. You know, could you come in, you know, in the next 
week or two. And I had no freaking idea what I would be telling the commissioner of baseball about like, you know, so I reached out to Redford and I reached out to another colleague, you know, uh, Rob and Raj, and they said, let's make a video. We'll make a video and we'll show them the connection between venue operations and upstream impact. So if you show the lights going on at a baseball stadium, you then show the smoke coming out of a coal plant. You know, if you show somebody throwing out a hot dog wrapper, you show a landfill, you know, um, you know, if you show, you know, um, you know, somebody wearing a jersey, you know, you show, you know, textile manufacturing in Bangladesh. And we put and Bob Redford narrated it. He appeared in it in his he, he, he was once in a movie called The Natural and uh, which is a Saul Bellow um, uh, story about an aging baseball player who comes back and helps win the World Series. So and and, and, and at, at Major League Baseball headquarters, they think that movie with Redford in it is a documentary. <laughs> you know, they love Bob Redford. So we had Redford narrated. We used um, the music from The Natural without approval. We used visuals from Major League Baseball without approval. We used the Major League Baseball logo without approval. And I went in with this three-minute video, and I showed it to the commissioner and you know some of his senior people, and they loved it. And I said, you know, by the way, you know, this is just for us, so please forgive me for using all these assets without any approval. I just created, and they loved it. And then that led to, that was 2005, and that led to a collaboration between, you know, Bud Selig and myself and NRDC and MLB, where we created environmental information for every baseball stadium location specific. Meaning, if you were in Los Angeles, we gave you the phone number of who to call on recycling. You know, if you were in Seattle, we gave you the phone number of who, you know, everything was, and NRDC spent about $800,000, and we had about a dozen people working on that for two years. Every issue, it was called the Greening Advisor, you know, for the Commissioner's Initiative on Sustainable Ballpark Operations. And then Seelig announced it, and I gave it to Bud, and I said, I don't want, I don't want to be, I I don't want anyone to know we're involved. This is to come from you. And it went really well. And it turns out, you know, when Bud retired from MLB, I wrote an article in Sports Business Journal titled The Greatest Environmentalist in the History of Sports. You know, Bud Selig, he took me by the shoulders and he said, whatever you need, you let me know. He was a major environmentalist. Once we announced the, the program with Major League Baseball, David Stern noticed, the NBA commissioner. So in 2007, I got asked to meet with David and we did the same thing. We created a greening advisor for every NBA team. Um, and, um, and I was getting funded by a benefactor who really understood, you know, the idea of that the most important thing we could do is change minds, change behavior. It wasn't a technical barrier. It wasn't an economic barrier. It was a cultural barrier. You know, so, you know, how do you change culture? You know, you know, what are the platforms? Well, there's religion, but religion doesn't necessarily bring everybody together. You know, there's science, but, you know, people aren't paying attention to science. Um, there's music and entertainment, you know, and I did do the Oscars and the Grammys and what, but, but, you know, three quarters of Americans are following sports and every newspaper in every city every day has a sports section. So, David Stern and I created NBA Green. And at the time, NBA shared nine arenas with the NHL. So a representative from Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the NHL, called me and um, said, you know, we know what you're doing with the NBA. You know, we want to do this, too. So I created NHL Green. So now NRDC is advising Major League Baseball. We're advising the NBA. We're advising, you know, um, the National Hockey League. You know, suddenly I got like a multi-million dollar advocacy program and it was all based. You can't do politics. OK, there was no politics. Uh, it was all about energy efficiency and smart, smarter procurement and more efficient operations and saving money. I mean, we saved them, you know, at Bush Stadium. I remember we found we did an energy audit. We found 24 percent energy use reduction, saved them half a million dollars a year. We were saving teams they had never measured they never measured. They didn't measure their energy use. They didn't measure their waste generation. And that's what I said. Let's just measure. And if there's one thing I know, it's if you ask people to measure, they will identify opportunities for enhancement. 
And um, then I lobbied. I spent nine months lobbying the editors at Sports Illustrated to get a story about um, sports work in the environment. And actually, in March 2007, I got a cover story in Sports Illustrated about climate and sports. And I remember, why did it take me nine months? I kept meeting with editors and reporters. They were not interested, not interested. Finally, Terry O'Donnell, you know, that because I did have the commissioner of baseball and basketball and hockey with me, he invited me in to make a presentation to his reporters. They weren't interested at all. And the meeting was really going downhill. And, um, and I, and I remember I, I said, OK, I'm really sorry. I really think this is an important issue. I think it's going to become an increasingly important issue. I said, let me just say this, you know, Sports Illustrated. And at the, I said, and this was in 2007. So I said, every year for the last 52 years, you have produced an annual issue with a woman on the cover who's 99% naked. OK, your swimsuit issue. OK, I'm not telling you not to do that. But I'm asking you for one story, one cover story in the history of your magazine about the future of the planet. Okay, and I'm going to leave you with that. You could keep doing your swimsuit issue every year, but I'm asking you for one story. And everybody, went, okay, goodbye. And as I'm walking out, Terry O'Donnell, the editor-in-chief of Sports Illustrated, called me into his office and he said, we're going to do it. And we got that cover story. Well, guess who saw that? Billie Jean King. And I go to my office and there's a note on my desk from the president of NRDC that says, Alan, Billie Jean King wants to talk to you. Call Pam at this number. And I thought it was a joke, right? I, you know, because people talked about me doing the sports stuff, like to get tickets and stuff like that. You know? <laughs> it's like, and I said, really? So, you know, yeah, Billie Jean King, you know, can you meet Billie? They just named the National Tennis Center after Billie. She'd like to meet with you. Can you be at the U.S. Tennis Association's national headquarters? You know, at this day, at this time, she'd like to introduce you to the CEO and the president of the USTA. I said, oh, yeah, I'm there. And I met Bill. And the first thing Billy says, and I look, this is just, you know, I, uh, this is true. And I'm not saying it for any other reason. And Billy, I guess she knows how to stroke people. But the first words out of Billy's mouth was, Alan, I've always wanted to meet you. Those were the first words Billie Jean King ever said to me. I was like, what? I actually, you know what I said? I said, you got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, let's, let's push forward. The, then the, this all led to the formation of the Green Sports Alliance. You left NRDC. It right. was all consuming, obviously. Right. This was your focus. So, yeah. So what happened is, so we created, you know, the program at the USTA and then I got, I started to work with major league soccer with Don Garber. So now we've got a program at NRDC where we're advising every professional sports league in North America and the Red Sox. I put 28 solar panels on the right field roof of Fenway. I, you know, I did work with the pirates. I've been asked to throw out four first pitches because I'm advising and it became overwhelming. Plus, as you know, Sponsors started to pay attention and NRDC doesn't take money from corporations and we don't collaborate with. I had to go through the corporate review committee just to work with baseball. OK, because NRDC doesn't want to look like it's, you know, being. So it got to the point where I said, you know, I got to I got to create, you know, a separate organization that could actually interact with these corporations in a way that NRDC couldn't. Just as I was thinking of that, I got a call from. Someone who worked for Paul Allen, you know, the co-founder of Microsoft. And he says, you know, we've been following your work in sports. We own three sports teams and we're wondering if you could help us out. I say, you own three sports teams. What three sports teams do you own? Now, this is 2009. He says, well, we own the Seattle Seahawks, the Portland Trailblazers and the Seattle Storm. I said, wow, that's three teams from three leagues. I said, you know, I'm also working with the Seattle Mariners and I know the Vancouver Canucks, that's five leagues. I said, why don't we get them all together and form some kind of green sports coalition? I said, I had just done that with Broadway. I created the Broadway Green Alliance like the year before. I said, you know, we, we pulled together all 40 Broadway theaters into the Broadway Green Alliance. Why don't we do that in sports? And he says, sounds good. Why don't you come on out? So I flew out to Seattle to Paul Allen's headquarters. 
And we came up with the idea to create an alliance, a coalition. And we launched the Green Sports Alliance with six teams from six leagues, which it's now, you know, hundreds of teams from, you know, scores of leagues. And it it really took off. And then in 2016, um, I saw that this was just, you know, I left NRDC after 28 years to take over as president of the Green Sports Alliance. I was on the board of the Green Sports Alliance, obviously, but the board felt that the current, that the person managing it at the time, that, you know, they asked if I would do it. So NRDC said, we'll give you a year's salary um, and we'll give you medical benefits um, and we'll make a donation and we'll help you run that. You know, NRDC helps create these. So I went to run the Green Sports Alliance and I did that, you know, as president for like a year and a half. And while I was there, I got called from folks in Australia. So we created the Sport and Environmental Alliance in Australia. And then I got asked um, by uh, European rugby and European soccer if I would help them. And then I got asked, uh, introduced to the International Olympic Committee. So I started to spend a lot of time in Europe and in 2017, collaborating with my European network, we created Sport and Sustainability International, which is based in Lausanne, Switzerland. So, you know, in 2002, I helped create the Environmental Paper Network, which was based on our toilet paperwork. In 2000, you know, then I, you know, I created NBA Green, MLB Green, NHL Green, the USTA's program, Major League Soccer's program, um, and also AEG, which owns the Staples Center and the Barclays Arena and the O2 Arena. I started to work with them when I was doing the Grammys because the Grammys were being hosted at the Staples Center. So when I went to do the environmental work at the Staples Center, I discovered that AEG had no environmental program. Well, now they do. Uh, and they own 300 and operate over 300 venues around the world. And I still advise them. Um, and, um, you know, and then suddenly, you know, it, you know, it became, you know, we so we created Sport and Sustainability International. Um, I was one of the advisors for the uh, International Olympic Committee's, you know, environmental strategy out to 2030. Next thing you know, it's like the whole world is, you know, everybody's involved. And it's wonderful. It's just so great to see how this has just taken off you know, you know, around the world. It's funny because a lot of people say, oh, sports could be a good platform. You know, it's like, yeah, uh-huh. I mean, if IBM, if Toyota, if GM, if they use sports as a platform to try to change the culture of the marketplace, why can't environmentalists? Um, we could not for many years until the first time we were able to use the word climate change, because as you may remember, as many remember, climate change, the term was very political and sports was trying to avoid it. But in 2015, the National Hockey League, in their sustainability report, in the letter from the commissioner, mentioned the word climate change. And that was the first time climate change was mentioned in the context of sports. We used to talk about energy efficiency or smarter, more efficient economical procurement. But the NHL you know, broke the ice, pardon the pun, and used the word climate change. And then in 2017, the NBA, we produced these animated uh, videos um, about energy efficiency. And we talked about climate change in public. And now we talk about, you know, and now I serve on the UNF triple C's, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. I'm the representative there for the NBA and for the New York Yankees and for the USTA um, and actually working with the UN. That's how we got the creation of the UNF triple C's sport for climate action framework it was from the work that we did and um, I, you know, met with the UN people over and over and said, you got to get into this, get into this. Um, and then, you know, they created a division specific for sports and I'm, you know, on that steering committee. So, um, you know, and there's a lot, a lot of details now, you know, I mean, now, you know, I'm just working really, you know, at the event, unless you're in the building, you don't know what's going on, you know, and um, look, as you know, science is not just another opinion. And, um, and science um, can save lives, you know, uh, you know, science, you know, can heal the planet and uh, everything we do is authentic. Um, I make sure that everything the organizations do and say is not greenwashing. Recently, I've been very challenged because these terms net zero and carbon neutral are being thrown around 
you know, this arena, you know, say, oh, we're net zero. No, you're not. You know, I mean, I got a call from the New York Times, you know, the Sochi Olympics puts out a release, uh, you know, the first carbon neutral Olympics, Sochi Olympics. I get a call from, you know, New York Times doing a story. They, you know, we just got a press release from Dow and the Olympics saying this is the first carbon neutral Olympics. What's your reaction? And I say, there's no way in the world the Sochi Olympics is carbon neutral. And that went on. That went into the New York Times. So I get a call the next day, you know, from Dow and the, and the Olympics. What do you, you know, we spend millions of dollars. I said, let me ask you something. Athletes at Sochi, how did they get there? They flew. Okay, great. When they were on those planes, do you think they ate food? Oh, yeah. Well, of course, some of them ate food. Yes, of course. Do you think they all finish their meals? No, of course not. What, do you, what kind of questions are these? I said, so the food waste from the athletes on their way to Sochi, where did that wind up? It wound up in a landfill. Did you measure the 30-year methane emissions associated with food waste deposited by the athletes, you know, food waste, you know, in land? No, we didn't do that. I said, well, you know, so why are you saying you're carbon neutral? Same thing, you know, um, you know, I could I could give more examples. Um, and uh, in fact, you know, I just dealt with this with uh, with with Beijing. You know, they just came out with an announcement. They're going to be the first carbon positive. And no, no, you're not. No, yeah, you're not. The, sci the scientist in you is is having to educate on scope three emissions, which uh, the, the public is not quite ready to grasp, I'm afraid. But Alan, let me. Um, what an amazing, amazing interview. We've gone, we've gone a little bit over time. So I'm just going to reel you in here at a few sort of final, final sort of questions. But, but what do you think it is that has motivated you? I mean, you've just had so many, I mean, you mentioned chance and I, it ain't just chance that's gotten you here. You, you've got a lot of energy that's gone into this. What do you, what do you think's given you your motivation? Is it some of those early accomplishments that have just sort of led to, Hey, I can do this. You know, I don't, you know, it's a, it's a great question. Um, it's a spiritual, I, I, I view it as a spiritual mission. Um, and what do I mean by spiritual? I mean that um, because of my parents' history as refugees and, um, and you know, and concentrate, I, I always understood the interdependence of humanity. Um, to me, being a spiritual person means that you understand that, as the Buddhists say, there is no self by itself. There are people and persons, but we're all interdependent. And that's what I, I understand. Our inter, I, I've always saw our interdependence. Um, I mean, in part because my parents, you know, I grew up in a poor family. I watched my mother borrow money for food. Um, and it was very helpful for our family. So I always saw, and I grew up in Brooklyn in a neighborhood where, you know, everybody could hang out. So, uh, and then also because my first language is Yiddish and not English, I was always, and because my parents were refugees, I was never taught sort of, you know, social behavior in the American way. So I gravitated toward, like I said, I, I, I graduated high school class mathematician. I liked numbers. I liked facts um, because, you know, I can make a mistake socially, but two plus two equals four in Polish. It equals four in Yiddish. It equals four in English, you know? So I dealt with the, you know, the- It was, your, it was a basis. You had your basis was the facts and the science. Yeah, yeah. And then what, what would you say- uh, I have I have some ideas, but what 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 are you doing to keep your balance these days? Right, we've been, we've been working hard at our careers for decades, yeah. and yeah, what are you doing to keep your balance? Well, you have to understand your purpose, and you know, um, when I was, you know, I I've done you know leadership training, and you know, you have to understand what your purpose is, and you know, the question is, if you were God forbid to find out tomorrow that you had, um, you know a month to live, who's the first person you would tell? Um, what would you miss the most? Um, well, the first person I would tell is my wife and my children. 
what would I miss the most? My children. So really I'm grounded in my family and I have some, you know, and, and friends, you know, I have, a, you know, a small circle of really close friends, but my purpose is um, as a father and as a husband and as a brother and an uncle. Um, so, you know, that keeps me grounded. And um, I mean, look, I could cry and I, <laughs> I cry at so many meetings, um, but, you know, there's a, you know, a two thirds chance likelihood that in my children's lifetime, we're going to get to two degrees centigrade, centigrade. You know, like, what is it going to take to wake people up? You know, I mean, there's, you know, there's a more than 50% chance we could get to three degrees centigrade. Okay, you know, I, I just spent like hours yesterday, you know, going through, you know, the last two IPC, you know, reports, because um, I have to give a speech on this issue in a couple of weeks to a, a big sports conference, you know, you know, I mean, our, our children's lives are truly at risk. You know, I mean, you know, we're already experiencing incredible catastrophes. Hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people every year die as a result of climate impacts. What about my grandkids? You know, my kids matter to me, and I suspect that their kids will matter to them. I know they will. Well, do I want my children to experience their children going through three-degree temperature rise, cents Celsius? You know, so... I mean, I feel this is an urgent personal issue because, you know, I feel it with my children and I also understand our interdependence. I mean, look, I'm, you know, I'm a humanitarian. I'm an empath. Um, you know, I, I experience a tremendous amount of empathic distress. Um, you know, I have to, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I left my home yesterday at 720 in the morning to give a talk, you know, to start meeting with people about, you know, poverty alleviation, hunger alleviation, climate change, biodiversity. And I came home at a quarter to 11 PM. Um, you know, and, you know, and guess what, you know, this morning I was up at eight 30 dealing with plastics. Um, and it's, uh, if I didn't do this work, I, I would go out of my mind. I, you know, let's, I mean, uh, let, let me interrupt you and just, let's leave it there. Uh, you are just so great. I'm, I'm so appreciative of what you've done and what you're doing. And, and to spend this time talking to you about your life and your philosophy and how you, how this is all woven together into this, into this fabric that makes Alan Hershkowitz is, is fantastic. Thank you. Well, let me say this, Ted, um, you know, you're, you're, I am the environmental science advisor to the Yankees. And when we started to think about, okay, is it possible, you know, what could we do? Um, you were the guy I called, um, you know, I have such incredible respect and admiration, not only because I, you know, we're friends, you know, really, you know, I mean, even though we don't see each other that often because we're on, you know, different but, you know, you're in my heart and I have such incredible regard for your expertise and, you, and the way you have managed your career. And you were, I mean, when the, I said, you know what, we might be able to do this. And I know just the person who, you know, who, I, who, who could give us, in, in, you know, dealing with the Yankees on climate. Okay. You know, the most valuable sports franchise in the world on the most urgent issue humanity has faced, and I'm navigating that issue, I gotta be really, really careful about what I do, what I say, and who I bring into the fold. And when it came to our energy work, I went to you. Um, I have, I'm, I'm honored by that and, and uh, happy, to, happy to support you with that project and, and, and other projects. But, let me just turn that focus back on you. Uh, this is about you. You're, you've just done amazing things, Alan. I know you're. I know you're. You ain't quitting. Uh, nothing's stopping. But you're just in progress, and you've been a, a truly an inspiration to so many people. So, 
let's let's end this. Uh, thanks again for being on the net positive. Mm -hmm. I will have many, many more conversations uh, going forward. I'll look forward to that. I love you, brother. Okay, thanks for doing this. And um, stay healthy, stay well. I wish you continued good health. And, you know, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, and we have some details to go over, but that's, you know, <clears throat> you know, that's another call. It's another call on uh, how to alleviate human suffering. Love you, man. Love you too. Thanks, Alan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time. Thank you.